Amen. Well, good morning. Happy Easter. What a great sunny day. It's warm all week. We're doing baptisms in Minden outside in a couple hours. So uh, pray that the sun will come out. It's, it's warm-ish water. So, um, well, we're, we're glad that you're here. My name is Derek. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, and I, I keep getting the question, how is Africa? So a, a group of us went to Africa to drill some wells, and it went extremely well. We're back. We, we made it. Um, and God blessed. You know, God blessed in that we hit water in two different locations. He blessed in creating contacts, I think, with, with places where God is wanting to move. There's unreached people groups there, um, and God is moving, so that's pretty exciting. You'll get a chance to hear more about that as time goes on, but we don't have time today because it's Easter, and we are celebrating the resurrection of our Lord. Let me pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we do lift you up. I, I mean, the songs that we're singing bring tears to our eyes as we realize it is finished because of you. That we realize that what you did on the cross, what we celebrated on Friday, your sacrifice for our sins made it possible for us to avoid eternal death and separation. And now today we celebrate your resurrection. Thank you for rising from the dead victorious, declaring victory over sin, victory over death, victory over the grave, so that we too can be confident in our victory in you in eternity that we will get to be with you because of what you have purchased for us. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. So when I was 22, 23-ish, I was living in Russia, working in the U.S. Embassy. Uh, the embassy had a racquetball court, and so I was playing racquetball. And while playing, I, something happened to my knee. I'm playing along, and it just kind of seized up. And I fell over and tried to straighten, and I couldn't straighten my leg. So I went to the embassy doctor, who is one of those kind of, well, it's a doctor that does everything. He said, oh, it's just sprained. It'll get better. So I believed him. And a week went by, and there was no improvement. I still couldn't straighten my leg. I was still on the crutches. And I went back, and I said, I, I think there's something more wrong. And he looked at it, and he's like, no, it's just sprained. Um, so I didn't believe him. So I found a, the International Medical Clinic in Moscow. So I took a, a taxi, and I went there, and I met with this French doctor, whose English was pretty good-ish. Um, and I sit down, and he starts asking me questions about my knee. You know, how does it hurt? What were you doing when it happened? And before he was done questioning me, he had already had me diagnosed. Um, but just to be sure, he checked, you know, I hopped up on the little bench, and he checked me out. And he said, yeah, you tore your meniscus, and you need surgery. I said, well, do you want to do like an x-ray or an MRI? He said, no, I can tell. I'm like, hmm. <laughs> so I found, I mean, yeah. Moscow, I don't speak Russian. I had some Russian friends with decent English, and I said, I need to get an x-ray. They're like, you know what? There's this place down off this metro station, down this alley, you can get one for like 500 bucks. So, I mean, somebody drew me a map, and I'm going down this dark alley. It was really weird. I mean, it was like out of the movies. But I find this, this room, and I go in, and sure enough, there's an x-ray machine, and I give them 500 bucks cash, and they x-ray it. And I take those x-rays, back to this French doctor, and I give them to him, and he just kind of shrugged, like, I told you, you didn't need to do that. And he puts them up and looks at them for about two seconds and says, I was right, meniscus torn surgery. So we scheduled it. I had the surgery, super quick, super easy, and I walked out that day. That guy was an expert. The embassy doctor, not so much. Uh, but, but this guy, I mean, he knew what he was talking about. He specialized in injuries like that. He knew what he was talking about, and he was able to diagnose and then fix the problem. Now, that'll make sense in just a minute, but I want to ask you a question this Easter morning. How are you? 
really though, emotionally, spiritually, how, how are you? Have you ever had that, that day where you're just going through life and things aren't good and that person that loves you asks you how you are and you do the typical, I'm fine, and then they go, no, 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 how are you really? And it breaks through that, I want to do that right now. There's a God who loves you, a God who brought you here today, and he's asking, how are you? If we're honest, I think a lot of us are going to say stressed, scared, confused, tired, worn out. And we don't need to pretend like we're not. We don't need to pretend like everything is good. Now, you may answer things are great, and that's awesome. But how are you really? And there is a good doctor, an expert, God the Father, who is able to diagnose what's going on with you, just like that doctor was with me, and then provide a solution. And that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to see in uh, the book of Acts. So turn to Acts if you would. There's Bibles underneath your seat. Grab, turn to Acts. If you don't know where it is, that's okay. Uh, look up the table of contents. It's somewhere in the New Testament. But we're going to see in Acts, the Apostle Paul go to a place called Athens. And while in Athens, he's going to do exactly this. He's going to diagnose their issue, basically, and provide the solution, provide the answer. And it is extremely relevant to us here today. So we're going to be in Acts chapter 17. Acts 17. And I'm not going to give away the ending too much, although it's Easter, you might be able to guess at it. But here's, what, here's the crux of the matter. It comes down to who God is. All of our issues, you know, how are you, whatever that is. Are you stressed? Are you tired? Are you worried? You got money issues. You've got relational issues. It all comes down to this. Who is God? I mean, who is he really? And what are you going to do with that fact? And that's what Paul's going to talk about, the nature of God, who he is really, and then our response. That's what it comes down to. Who God is, what we do with him, what's our responsibility? So Acts 17, we're going to start in verse 16, but let me set the stage real quick. Paul, you know, this is probably 20 to 40 years after Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead. Paul was saved by Jesus miraculously. Uh, he was a Pharisee. He was a Roman. He was pretty high standing. And he gave his life to go on these missionary journeys to tell people about Jesus. Mainly, he was called to go to Gentiles, meaning not Jews. Most of the other disciples, the apostles, they hung out in Jerusalem for a while. Then they went out, but they were kind of all called to, to Jews to begin with. Paul was called to Gentiles. And so he was doing these missionary journeys. He had kind of just gotten booted out of a place. It was too dangerous for him. And now he's going to Athens to wait for his friends. And he's just there waiting. I mean, he didn't have a plan. He wasn't going to go plant a church. He was just there. And as he sits and he looks around, he gets a little bit fired up. He sees the idolatry, the idols in that area, and he gets a little fired up. And we're going to see what happens. Look at Acts 17, starting in verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. 
And they took him and they brought him to the area of Opagus, saying, May we know this new teaching that you are representing. For you're bringing some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So, so here's this situation. Paul is in Athens. Now, if you go home and Google it, Athens is still there. It's in Greece. And Athens was one of those places where people would come and go often, but it was a center for learning. A lot of the philosophers had been in there. You know, Socrates, Aristotle, those guys had hung around in that area. And so this was a place of thinkers to come and to trade ideas. And it says here, you see in these verses, that they did nothing except for look for something new and talk about it. So Paul is there, and, and this culture is very pluralistic, similar to ours, but different, meaning they believed in many gods. And so they were kind of always on the lookout for the one that they missed. Uh, what, there's, here's another God that, and they hear Paul preaching, well, maybe we need to know about this because he fits into our pantheon, and maybe we're missing something that they can offer now, in our culture, you know, we really don't have idols. I mean, some people might have little statues in their house that they pray to, but in general, that's not really our culture. Our culture is, though, quite pluralistic. You probably hear this very often, that you can believe what you want to believe, and let me believe what I want to believe. Everything eventually leads to the same place. So that is similar to, to what they believed, yet quite different. Uh, this week, or this past week, when we were in Africa, it was kind of interesting how my eyes were actually open to this passage. God kind of He's divine. He's at work all the time. But I learned about one of the main religions there in North Africa is called animism. And so they believe in gods and spirits, and they believe that God is ultimately good, but he's, he's kind of just out there, not really involved, kind of out there. But there's these spirits that are evil that are out to get us. And so for them, their main thing is appeasing these evil spirits so things go well. So if they're pregnant, they're going to have a baby. They want to appease this certain spirit so that that spirit won't come against them, you know, in their birth. Uh, when they're doing their, their crops and things, they want to appease these spirits so things go well for them. And the way, just speaking of the missionaries that live there, the way that people break in to, to that belief is when Jesus' power is shown above those spirits and they go, oh my goodness. They're, so this God we believe in anyway actually is all-powerful. We don't have to believe in the spirits or appease them. By the way, demonic activity is real, and some of the stories we heard were crazy, uh, but God is real. And that aligns somewhat with what these Athenians were believing because they had many gods and they wanted to make sure they weren't missing something. And so Paul is going to address their issue. But what is their issue? Idolatry. That's what Paul saw. He saw these idols that they were worshiping. And what is idolatry? Well, if you look it up in Webster's Dictionary, an idol is an object of extreme devotion. So although we here may not have a lot of idols that we set up and pray to, we do have our idols, don't we? What are you devoted to? Just think about that. What are you devoted to? We can make idols out of pretty much anything. Sports teams, we can make an idol out of a sports team. People want a place to belong. They want something to worship, really. We're made to worship. What is it that you're worshiping? What, what is it for you? I mean, worship, worth-ship. What is it that is worth a lot to you? Maybe that you sacrifice time to, you sacrifice money to. You know, if you're not sure maybe what your idols are, I would say open up your checkbook if you still use one. Where does your money go? Where does your money go? Where does your, look at your calendar. 
Where does your time go? That will reveal those things to you that you are devoted to. You know, in this country, I think we can very clearly look at materialism. You know, the accumulation of stuff. We worship stuff. Just look at our garages so full of stuff. Hedonism, which is really the worship of pleasure. Uh, the, the seeking whatever makes you happy, go do that. That's hedonism. And so we're, we're often, many of us are in search of the next, the next fix, the next thing that's going to give us pleasure. Or how about self-identity? Have you made an idol out of yourself? out of what people would, would think about you or look at you, just look at Facebook or Instagram or whatever the newest thing is. But you see that and, and the depression it's creating in people because they've idolized themselves and what others think of them. And we can go on and on with these different idols. Just go to a kid's sporting event. You'll, you'll see some, some idolatry there of the parents that are all committed to this, this sport, whatever it is. But here, these Athenians constantly were looking for what was new. Why? Just think about that logically. Here's these really smart philosophers, and, and a couple of them, the Stoics and the Epicureans are, are pointed out, and we'll see them a little bit later. But the Stoics, they believed that God was, was out there, that God was somewhat sovereign, but he wasn't real close, and everything that happened was determined by him. So that's why they were Stoic. You, you probably heard that. Stoic, meaning whatever happens, happens. I get hit by a bus. Eh. That's, you know, not a lot of emotion. They were just kind of stoic. The Epicureans were kind of the opposite. That God, God or gods were, were here among us, uh, but they weren't really all that transcendent. They're, they were imminent, but not transcendent. So their lives were really marked by pleasure, by hedonism, by, by the parties that they would do. You know, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. That was the the Epicureans. And so these two groups are polar opposites, both there in Athens kind of still looking for what's new. Why are they looking for what's new? What they had wasn't working. What they had wasn't working. The Epicureans, that wasn't work. The pleasure thing wasn't working. They were still looking. The Stoics, that wasn't working. They were still looking. So let me come back to my question. How are you? Is it working for you? How's life going for you? There's a lot of quacks out there, like that embassy doc, who would diagnose you and offer you something else, whether it be hedonism, materialism, pleasure. They would offer you these things. How's that working for you? It wasn't working for them. And so here, Paul is going to do a spiritual MRI on these people. And he's going to point to the one true God. So look, if you would, at uh, verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along, I observed the objects of your worship. I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. This is kind of cool. Just, we're going to get into his sermon here, but, but Paul is pretty awesome. You know, this isn't really a compliment. It's, it's kind of just a, a statement. I see that you're very religious. And as I wandered around before I went to Starbucks and after I went to the synagogue, I found this, this altar you have set up to the unknown God. And so he uses that very respectfully. He finds common ground with them. And he says, this unknown God, I'm going to tell you about him. 
He's going to diagnose the problem. Look at verse 24. This unknown God, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Right here, these verses are packed. Open, if you've fallen asleep, wake up now. Uh, Abraham Lincoln, who was a great orator himself, he said this is the best speech ever written. Because here, Paul, in just these two verses, Paul goes through a lot of the Old Testament, which these were Greeks. They didn't believe the Old Testament. But, so Paul isn't quoting the Old Testament. He actually quotes their poets and their philosophers in a little bit. But he's still going through the Genesis creation account and the story, and he's talking about the nature of God because it all centers on that. Who is this God, and what does he say? He said, this God made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth. Okay, he made everything, the creator. That's transcendence. That's above. So right now, the Stoics are listening to that going, yeah, totally. Then he goes, but he's Lord of all, meaning he's close. He's Lord. He's intimate. He's among us. So the Epicureans are listening going, yeah, totally. He's got these two opposites. He's got the, the, the liberals, you know, he's got the Democrats and the Republicans both doing this. <laughs> They're all, so he's, he's going to point to who this God is. He made everything. Doesn't creation define or, or origin define purpose? Think about that. We have our own creation myths just like they did then. Theirs were, they had some crazy ones like God's fought and one bled and the blood drops turned into people. Um, Maybe that's a little bit more realistic than evolution, but, but we have our own creation myths. But those, those stories would define existence. If we are a product of the Big Bang and evolution, what's that mean? Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. That's what it means. It means live for yourself because we're just an accident. And when you die, that's the end. If the creation account in the Bible is true then you have infinite value because you're made in the image of God. That gives me chills. <laughs> God made you on purpose for a purpose and loves you intimately. Wow. If that's true, it changes everything. And so Paul here wants to point that out. By the way, this unknown God, he, he's above all these other ones that you worship. You can throw them out because this one is sovereign over those. He created everything and he's Lord of everything. So he's involved. We're going to talk about this some next week as we go start in the book of John, that he's sovereign and close, and he needs nothing. Look at the end of verse 24. He doesn't live in temples made by man. So you guys are going to these temples thinking God is there. God's not there. God is over everything. He's in everything. He's around it all. He isn't nature. You know, don't confuse that. God isn't the rocks, the trees, but he's sovereign over all that. He's not in temples. And verse 25 He's not served by human hands as though he needed anything. But yet he gives life. This, for them, was earth-shattering. Because their religion said that the gods are needy. That, so they lived their lives trying to appease the gods. They would sacrifice. They would do some pretty crazy things to make their, their crops go because they believed that the gods were needy and needed them to worship them, needed them to do these ritualistic things because the gods were needy. But Paul here is saying, no, no, God doesn't need anything. 
And this is one of those big questions. I had somebody actually recently say, you know, God created us because he needed us to love him. No, he, he didn't. God doesn't need you. God doesn't need me. He doesn't need any of us. But he did create us for a purpose. And we're going to see that in a minute. But this is pivotal, pivotal to who God is. He doesn't need anything. That frees us up. Does that free you up? Maybe you were raised in a, in a real conservative, legalistic background as if God needs our obedience. He doesn't. He wants it for your good and for mine, but he doesn't need anything. So then why did he create us? He's talking about this God who's both transcendent and imminent, and he created us. Why? Look at verse 26. And he made from one man, that would be Adam, every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. I mean, look at this. What does this tell us about God? He made us through Adam, by the way, you know, current DNA Science stuff, which I don't know a lot about, has determined that we originated in Africa. That's probably true. That's one thing they've gotten right. Adam was probably somewhere around northern Africa. We know Noah landed somewhere around there. So, so here, this is true. He created us from one man for a reason. And he determined their allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. So he's still transcendent. Here's something real quick that you can get from this. He decided you would be here today. God is sovereign. It is no accident that you're here today. Uh, this morning before our service, as we do every week, we were praying for what would happen today. And we've been praying for weeks and weeks and weeks what God would do on Easter because there's something unique about Easter Sunday. There's something unique in that hearts that are often hard get a little bit softer today. And we've been praying that God would bring some today that he's already having a conversation with. Maybe you're sitting here going, you know what, this, this isn't all new to me. The, God has been kind of talking to me. You know, this person said some things a month ago, and then I read this, and maybe you came in here today actually ready to, to hear some answers. That's because God's in control, because God decided you would come today, because he wants to do some things. So God has determined certain things, and he created us for a reason. Look at verse 27. Why are we created? That we should seek God. There it is. What's our purpose? To seek after God. Why did God make you? To seek after him. Is, he hi is this like hide and seek? <laughs> I mean, is he hiding under the bed or is he somewhere? Is he in Tibet on top of a mountain? And if you go there and climb the mountain, now you'll find him? No, it says he's actually not far from each one of us. In the book of Revelation, it, it, it pictures Jesus on the other side of a door. And whoever would knock, he'll open. He's not hiding. He's given Jesus, again, our next series, we're going to see a lot of this. He's given us Jesus to reveal the Father. He's given us the Bible. He's wanted to make himself known, and he has. And he's very near to each one of us that we would seek after him. In Scripture, you'll see several different places where it talks about the purpose that, of, of our, our purpose, why God created us. Jesus said at one point this. So we talk about this often at Common Ground. Jesus said, eternal life is this that you would know the Father and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. You're made to know God. 
The, the writer in Ecclesiastes says that eternity is written on the heart of everyone. So I could try and prove to you creation over evolution, but at your heart of hearts, you know it. Because God designed you, God made you in his image, and he's written eternity on our hearts. We desire the transcendent. I mean, just go watch the movies that come out. They're all about, I mean, these superheroes, and, and there's something about us that longs for the transcendent because it's in us and it's real. I mean, just imagine how the Bible describes heaven if that place is real, and it is. We desire the transcendent, and so we are designed to seek after what God would have, and our purpose is to know him. There's no greater fulfillment in life than knowing God. When Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment, what did he say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. What are you made for? To know God and to love Him. I mean, holy cow. We're not created for this legalistic obedience. We're created for a love relationship with God. In the book of Isaiah, God, through His prophet, He says, Those whom I have made, those whom I call by my name, whom I created for my glory. You were created for the glory of God. I mean, all of this defines our existence. That's what we're here for. So when we are singing worship songs, right now we're worshiping. If your heart is open to what God would do, you are worshiping God right now, and this is what you're made for. When we sing afterward, we are worshiping God. It's what we're made for. There's something about that that just feels right because we're in our element. It's like a hammer being used to drive a nail. It's what it was made for. We are made to know God, to seek God, to love God. They're philosophers, they're poets whom, whom Paul quotes. They had some ideas, they had the desire for the transcendent, but they didn't have the answers. They were still looking. You know, I thought right here it would fit for, for me to read some of our poets that I think would define maybe some of our thinking. Let me read this. Maybe you'll recognize it. I have climbed the highest mountains. I have run through the fields only to be with you, only to be with you. I have run, I have crawled, I have scaled these city walls, these city walls only to be with you. But I still haven't found what I'm looking for. But I still haven't found what I'm looking for. I have kissed honey lips, felt the healing in the fingertips. It burned like fire, this burning desire. I have spoken with the tongue of angels. I have held the hand of a devil. It was warm in the night. I was cold as a stone, but I still haven't found what I'm looking for, but I still haven't found what I'm looking for. You recognize the song yet? <laughs> I believe in the kingdom come, then all the colors will bleed into one, bleed into one. But yes, I'm still running. You broke the bonds, you loosed the chains, carried the cross of my shame, of my shame. You know I believe it, but I still haven't found what I'm looking for. You're lucky I'm not singing it. <laughs> but I still haven't found Believe me, I thought about it. I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Does that resonate with you? I've tried this and it didn't work and I'm still looking. I've climbed this mountain, I've tried this. I've kissed the honey lips, I've tried the pleasure thing, but it didn't work. I still haven't found what I'm looking for. These people listening to Paul hadn't found what they were looking for. Many of us in this room right now, we haven't found what we're looking for, but God is telling you, I want you to know me, I have made myself known in Scripture. I sent Jesus to make a relationship with you possible. You haven't found what you're looking for, but guess what? You found it today. If you will just say yes to me, you have found what you're looking for. In Proverbs 14, 12, 
the writer says, there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it is the way of death. There are a lot of things that sound right. There are a lot of quacks out there that sound good, that will give you answers to your problems. But if it's not in line with Scripture, they're wrong. They're wrong. And you could pursue them for years and end up on the other side. I still haven't found what I'm looking for. And by the way, this isn't to put guilt on you. You may be old, you may be young, and you're still looking. But guess what? It's never too late. It's never too late in this life to find Christ, to find salvation. You know, the question that often comes to me as I, as I look at this, and Jesus says, I'm enough. In my life, I look back, and Jesus has asked me this question many times. Derek, am I enough for you? Am I enough for you? And that's the greatest question to ask. Because when, we, when he's enough, we're good. It doesn't matter the circumstance. When he's enough, we're good. When I had a business, and I was doing the best I could, and the market crashed, and I couldn't pay my bills, and I was stressed, losing sleep, I mean, driving around trying to find work, and God asked me the question. It was, I mean, it was one of those weird things. I remember where I was in the driveway. Jesus said, Derek, am I enough for you? If you're homeless and, and broke, am I enough for you? And when I realized, yeah, you're enough for me, I had joy right then. <laughs> I had peace. I didn't have work. I didn't have money. My mortgage was still due, but I had peace. When, when a young man that took our dune buggy young man that Callie and I loved, he took it out to the desert and died in an accident. And I'm driving out there to meet his dad at the crash site. And I pull up and I see him standing there. Jesus asks, am I enough for you? Yeah, you have questions, but am I enough? And when I said, yes, you're enough, I had peace. I had peace. And I could go on and on with, with the stories of the things that we seek to fulfill, the questions that we have. But the question is, Jesus saying, am I enough? And I have to tell you, he is enough. And he will always be enough. Regardless of the circumstance, we have hope in him. We have confidence in him. So then what do we do? Look back at this passage. What do we do? This is who God is. He's made this possible through Jesus. What do we do? Look at verse 29. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. What do we do? You've heard the truth of God. What do we do? Repent. Repent. That word means to turn. What are those idols? What came to mind when I talked about idols? Repent means you take that off the stand and you put Jesus there. That's what repent means. Repent means whatever it is you've been seeking for fulfillment, you turn from that. You turn from your sin and you turn to Jesus and you say, yes, I believe Jesus. You are the son of God. I believe you died on the cross for me and I believe you rose from the dead. That's what Easter is about. I believe and I will follow you. I will remove this and I will place you there. By the way, it doesn't mean life's going to be perfect. It doesn't mean you're going to be perfect. I mean, if you do this today, you surrender to him, you're going to realize this week, now I'm in the street fight that the Bible calls sanctification, the process of becoming more and more like Jesus, but he'll go through it with us. But repentance means to turn, to follow him exclusively. Look at verse 31. Because he, that is God, has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. 
And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. God has overlooked the times of ignorance. Meaning if you here have lived in sin and have not surrendered to Jesus, God has overlooked that for now. But today is the day of salvation. And he won't overlook it forever because he has fixed a day when he will judge. Judgment is coming. You know, we see the cartoons of, you know, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand or whatever. People, you know, repent. God is, it's happening. Judgment day is coming. And when Jesus returns, it's over. He's coming back. And that day, it's over. Or the day that we die, it's over. We don't get to make a choice after death. And that's what he's talking about right here. He has fixed a day when he will judge. And you have the freedom to turn to him until then. But after then, it's too late. When we die or he returns, we're not going to stand before him and go, oh, no, I was wrong. I, I repent now. You say, it's too late. You had your chance. And so what do we do? We repent. We believe. And we turn to follow him. So the question is, what will you do with Jesus and with his resurrection? Today on Easter, we celebrate the resurrection. And notice in this, that, that's kind of the tipping point. They're listening to him. They're going, okay, this is interesting. And then he goes back to the resurrection, which he had already talked about before when he was walking through talking. They said, we want to hear this. And here he says, all these things that I'm telling you about this unknown God who created, who wants a relationship with you, he proved it. He proved it by raising himself from the dead. Jesus was risen from the dead. Now, we can, there's books back here that you can buy or you can borrow and look. Proofs of the resurrection. This happened. This is not a myth. This is a historical fact. Jesus rose from the dead. And by his resurrection, he gained the victory over sin and death and can give life to us. But when they heard about the resurrection, they had three different responses. Look at verse 32. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. They made fun of it. Others said, we'll hear you again about this. They were interested but not willing to commit. But some, verse 34, but some men joined him and believed, among, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Some will hear what we've talked about today and go, eh, that's a bunch of bunk. Some will hear and go, that's interesting. Eh, I'll look into it next Easter. Some, others hear and go, that's what I've been looking for. That, that's it. There is a God. He loved me. He sent his son, and it is my job to repent. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So let me ask the question I asked at the beginning. How are you? What's the diagnosis of your heart? Do you belong to Jesus Christ? Have you surrendered to him as Lord? Do you believe in the resurrection? Or are you still seeking something else? As Paul would say, it's time to repent. Today is the day to turn, to find life, to find what you've been looking for. And those of us in here, maybe we've done this a long time ago. We surrendered to Jesus. This is why I love Easter. We never move past the cross. The cross that saves us is the cross that sustains us. The power of God that rose Jesus from the dead is the power of God that enables us to continue li living on so that when life happens and Jesus says, Am I enough for you? We can say, yes, you are. Because God is powerful in us. Bow your head with me and let, let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for your sacrifice on the cross. On Friday, we celebrated your death. We celebrated you taking the weight 
of our sin upon your shoulders. The Bible says that for the wages of sin is death, meaning our sin earned death, but you took it. Thank you so much. And that same verse says, for the free gift of God is salvation in Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus, thank you for rising from the dead. Thank you for proving that you are the Son of God, proving you are divine, proving you could pay the penalty for sin, and you did. Thank you. Now, if you're here this morning, keep your head down and your eyes closed. And if today you know you need to repent, you need to say yes to Jesus, I would ask you to pray this prayer with me or pray something similar. Jesus, I believe you are the Son of God. Jesus, I believe I am a sinner and I need you. I believe you died on the cross for my sins. I believe you rose from the dead. And Jesus, I give my life to you today. Take my life and do with it what you will for your glory. Jesus, thank you for forgiving me for my sins. Now, if you're here, keep your head down, your your eyes closed. If you're here and you prayed that today is the day of your salvation, things are going to change. Today is the day when you've said yes to Jesus and God's going to do great things. Now, with your head down, if you prayed that prayer, I want you to just make eye contact with me. Just look up and make eye contact. I see you. I see you. If you prayed that prayer, make eye contact. I see you. I see you. Thank you. Today is the day of salvation for a handful in this room right now. Everybody else, just pray your prayers of thanksgiving for the new life that God gives. Lord Jesus, we love you. I ask you to bless this morning. Bless those who prayed that prayer and everyone else. Let your will be done in Jesus' name, amen. Now we're going to do something special. We have two more songs to sing, but before we sing, we're going to have baptisms. Baptism, yes, I heard a yes. Baptism is our celebration. Baptism doesn't save you, but baptism is our outward expression of an inward heart change. We have four people being baptized this morning, but here's the thing. If, you, uh, if you're here and you've never been baptized, but you've said yes to Jesus, and maybe you're one of those this morning that looked at me and you've never been baptized, guess what? You can today. We've got extra clothes. <laughs> baptism doesn't save you. There is no class that you have to take before baptism. Baptism is a way for us to say, I have said yes to Jesus, and I want him to be in control of my life. So if, uh, if you're getting baptized, make your way up. While this is happening, if you're thinking, it's time for me to get baptized, I need to do this, would you please go to the back? Alex, raise your hand. Go talk to Alex, and he's going to have a brief conversation with you, and then he'll send you up, and you can get baptized today. Paul? Paul?